I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, actually, I'm trying to pull out of my driveway. I'm being blocked by a giant truck full of goats. You see, uh, I live up in, um, up in this area where there's a lot of steep hills, and they can't mow the hills because they're so steep. So what they do is they get an army of goats to come and eat all the grass, and the, the goat truck was blocking my driveway. But I got around it. I have to go a slightly different detour to get to work, but I will get to work, and you guys will get your podcast. No goats. I am not stopped by goats. The podcast that is not stopped by goats. Okay, so last we talked, um, we were in the middle of cons of Tarkir design. So I'd gotten up through K, so we're up to L. So I believe we have uh, one or two more podcasts. Um, e- even though it seems like maybe not, uh, uh, a lot of the, uh, what happens is I explain a lot of things the first time I get to it, so there's more cards in the beginning of the alphabet than later, although there's still plenty left to talk about, so let's, let's jump in. Leaping Master. It's a 1R, so 1 in a red, 2-1 Human Monk, and for 2 in a white, it gains Flying till end of turn. So once again, this is one of the cards where we did enemy color cards, um, and the trick to the enemy color cards is making them such that you want both um, clans that can play it to be able to play it. So this is a red card, a 1R, 2-1, uh, with flying for 2W. So Mardu, okay, it's an aggressive creature. You can play it in turn 2. You can attack with it. And then later, if you have some mana, you can get some evasion to keep attacking. Mardu likes it. Uh, Jeskai, okay, Jeskai also likes it. Jeskai definitely has uh, tends to hit you a lot in the air, so this thing can fly. Um, and it, it curves pretty nicely so that you can come out turn 2, and you can even attack with it in, the, in flying turn 3 if you want, although probably you can play more creatures. But... Um, but anyway, both Jeskai and Mardu can play this card. It fits in both decks. It's themed as if it's um, Jeskai, because Flying Kick is what it is, a Leap Mafter, Leaping Mafter. So, like I said, I love the Jeskai stuff. Of all the, I mean, one of the cool things that the creative team did is for each of the clans, they went to a different source material and just remind up that source material. So each one definitely has a very cool and different flavor. It's one of the neat things about the clans is that each clan really has a distinctive feel to it. That's one of the things I enjoy most about the set. Okay, next, Lens of Clarity. Lens of Clarity is an artifact that costs one. It it lets you look at the top card of your library and any face-down creature you do not control. Um, So one of the cool things about about, uh, this card is, in general, Morph is a mystery mechanic. You want people to have mystery. We like to do a little bit of of getting around the mystery for people who want to plan, but if you notice, this card is pretty weak. The card is not made... We don't want to make a Lens of Clarity that's so good that everybody just runs it in their deck because that would undercut what Morph is. Basically, what we wanted to do is said, okay, if you really, really care, we'll give you a tool to help, you know, because some people do care. They want to know. <coughs> but we made the power level low enough that strategically, you most of the time are going to play Lens of Clarity. But if you really want to know or if you want to sideboard it in, I mean, it's a tool you can have if you need access to it. <coughs> Next, Mantis Rider. Blue, red, white, so it's a Jeskai card, costs three mana. Three, three, human monk. It has flying, vigilance, and haste. <coughs> so you'll notice, I, I keep pointing this out. One of the things we did in Wedge is we often... Excuse me one second, I'm going to take a drink of water because I am coughing here. <coughs> you'll notice one of the tricks we do in Wedge is we give three... We do three things on a card, and then one, each thing goes to one color. So flying is blue, vigilance is white, haste is red. So it has three abilities that all have some synergy with each other, but, you know, represent the three different colors. Okay, next. Mardu Ascendancy. 
So red, white, black, uh, it's an enchantment. I think all the ascendancies are just CDE, or just three mana, one of each color. Um, it says, whenever a non-token creature you control attacks, put a 1-1 one, one red goblin uh, token onto the battlefield, tapped, and attacking. Um, so the idea is, whenever I um, play a creature, um, I'm sorry, whenever I attack with a non-token creature, I get a 1-1 one, one goblin token in addition. Um, and I can sack this enchantment um, to give all my creatures I control plus zero plus three. So essentially the idea is, as long as you keep playing creatures, it just keeps growing your army. Uh, the reason it says non-token, in fact, both reasons. One is a power level, but the other is, you don't want the token creatures triggering other token creatures, and that way you get infinite creatures. It's like, I attack, and I make a token creature, which then makes a token creature, which then makes a token creature, uh, I attack for infinity, assuming that it ever resolved. Um... But anyway, one of the things that was fun about the Ascendancies in general is just trying to find an enchantment that really plays into the style of that particular clan. Uh, and Mardu, um, this is a Mardu card. It's all about attacking. It's all about building an army, an army of small creatures and just constantly attacking. Well, this says, okay, you want to play a lot of creatures, and as you play creatures, I'll give you more creatures, and then they just keep attacking and being aggressive. Um, no, the other thing that's cool is it's not just that when you play it... Um, I'm sorry, it's not when you play creatures, it's when you attack with creatures. But it's not just, when you attack, not when you get a token, it's attacking along with you. It's like every creature gets to attack with a little buddy along with it. And that happens each time you attack, so it, it really can build up over time. Okay, next. Mardu Hateblade. It's a 1-1 one, one for a single white mana. Um, I didn't write down the creature type. Uh, for black, it gains death touch till end of turn. So, once again, let's, let's do the test. It's a white card with a black activation. Who are the two people that would want it? Well, white, black, green is Obzon, and white, black, red is Mardu. So, Mardu is a 1-1, one, one, uh, a one-drop 1-1, one, one, a weenie, that's what Mardu wants, and it can kill things later on with Death Touch. So, it's, it's a 1-1 one, one that kind of, your opponent doesn't really want to block it, um, so it definitely has, Death Touch can work as kind of invasion in a Mardu deck. Um, in an Obzon deck, it's defensive. It's not that you're attacking with a 1-1, is you have a really good way to block, because when you have a creature that can have Death Touch, while wow, your opponent doesn't really want to attack into it. And so, it's aggressive in the Mardu deck, it's defensive in the Obzon deck. And, and that's pretty cool. That's one of the things you try to do when you're trying to crisscross dreams. Well, here's a general design note, is one of the things you always want to do is whenever you figure out what your different strategies are, you want to make part you make you make sort of linchpins that connect different strategies so that there are cards that can go in different decks. The reason that's important is twofold. One is, you want to make sure when people are drafting, they're not always getting the same deck. So if one particular archetype only cared about certain cards and nobody else cared about them, we would keep getting the same cards every draft, and then you would always have the same experience. But if you make cards that multiple different um, archetypes want, then they fight over them, meaning that you don't always get those things. There's a little more of a mix of what happens. The second is... Um, we definitely were trying to set up the idea of draft enemy, and then you can go into um, you can go into the clan that you want. And the idea is these cards were trying not to sort of force your hand. That if I take this card early, not early, but if I take this card, I can really still go in either clan. This card doesn't push me toward one of the two clans that it fits in. Okay. Next, Mardu Heart Piercer. So it's three and a red, four mana for a two-three human archer, uh, and has raid, meaning if you attack with a creature this turn, when it enters the battlefield, you deal two damage to target creature or player. Um, 
So this thing is really nice. It, uh, Raid obviously plays really nicely in Mardu because you're attacking anyway. And this also helps to clear things out of the way. Or it can do damage to the opponent. So like if you're close to if you're close to having them having you know ha- having done 20 damage, you can just hit them. If you'd rather get something out of the way so you can hit with more of the creatures, you can do that. It's a very efficient card. Next, Mardu Rough Rider. Okay, Mardu Rough Rider is a um, un- uh, Two red, white, black, so five mana, Mardu colors, five, four, Ogre Warrior. When you attack, target creature can't block this turn. Um, so one of the things you notice is that Uncommon, we, we, I think the morph creatures were a common, and then Uncommon, what we did was, we did creatures that are just good, solid creatures that you will want in your clan, um, now this is Mardu. Now this is five mana. This is a little top end of Mardu, but it's a big creature and it keeps things from blocking it. So um, the idea of Mardu, you want to constantly be attacking. Well, this is the kind of creature you can play late and really causes problems for your opponent and helps you get through the final damage to beat them. Um, one of the things that we were careful of, if you notice, by the way, the reason there's not a lot of uh, what I'll call CDE, but um, three mana cards that are exactly three mana is those kind of cards push you to, um, they cause mana issues in general, because in order to play, let's say you want to play a red, white, black card on turn three, it requires you to have exactly one of the lands in order, so on turn three you can play it. Uh, and we knew our mana fixing was good, but it, it, it put extra stress in the system we didn't want. So one of the things we did in Uncommon is when we made uh, sort of the, the CDE cards, by well, the, the, the wedge cards, we wanted to make sure that there were meaty and you wanted to play them, but made them a little bit more expensive so it didn't, you know, by the time you were able to play, the most likely you had the mana and not like, oh, I missed my, you know, because if it's all about meeting your your third turn drop, if your third turn drop's going to win the game, then you just do crazy shenanigans to get there, and we didn't want to stress the system that much. Okay, next, Mardu uh, War Shrieker. Um, three and a red for a 3-3 three, three Orc Shaman, uh, and as Raid... So when you, if you attack this turn, add red, white, and black mana to your mana pool. So the, it's a four mana three three. But if you've already attacked this turn, it gives you back three mana. So essentially, what it lets you do is lets you get a three three out really for one mana, assuming you have something else you can cast your mana on. Um, and, and this card is very very efficient. And it's one once again, it's one of those cards where it allows you to do what Mardu wants, which is to get multiple creatures out when you can. Even when you have a four-mana creature, this card allows you to actually get it out and something else out. Um, and it, it, it's a pretty good card. Okay, next, Master of the Way. Three blue-red sorcery, draw a card, and then card name deals damage to target creature equal to the number of cards in your hand. Okay, well, this is a very common way to do a gold card. This is a blue-red card. Um that you want a blue ability and a red ability. Pretty much, I've, I've talked about this in designing gold cards. Usually when you design multicolor cards, either there's an overlap where it's something both the colors do and you save money on it, you save mana on it, essentially. Like, well, blue can do this and red can do this, but neither can do it as efficiently as blue-red. Or you have something that has multiple abilities in it. Um, or you do something we've never done before and you define it that flavor. Anyway, I, I talked about this. Go listen to my gold uh, podcast. I'll talk about making gold cards. But anyway, this one, drawing a card is blue, dealing damage equal to whatever is red, happens to be cards in your hand. But by making a card in your hand, now you make it relevant because drawing a card connects. So I'll teach you another interesting thing. Whenever you have two abilities on a card, if you want the card to feel organic, you want the abilities to feel like they relation- have a relationship to it, each other. 
Now, you could just made a card that said, draw a card and deal two damage to a creature. But, you know, I mean, draw a card's weird because you can turn that into a cantrip. But, you know, do, do a blue effect, do a red effect. A lot of times it feels weird if there's not a connective tissue to it. So this card is nice. It says, okay, I draw a card, and then the next part, the damage, is tied into my card. So having drawn a card is relevant. It increases the amount of damage. It actually guarantees I at least do one damage. It also replaces the card that I'm playing so that I get to do damage essentially equal to what my hand size was before I played the card. Um, also, it's blue and red. That means it has to go both into um, Teamer and into Jeskai. Well, in general, drawing cards doing damage, a nice, simple utility thing that either deck would want to have. Okay, next. Meandering Tower Shell. Three green green, so five mana, two of which are green, for a 5-9 turtle, which I, I, I believe is the first 5-9 turtle in history. Uh, it is Island Walk. When it attacks, you exile it, and you return it tapped and attacking at the beginning of the next declare attacker step. So the flavor here is it's slow. It's a giant turtle, but it's slow. Um, the ch- no, so let me tell you, the, the, uh, this card was called Turtle McDurtle in design. Uh, designed, I believe, by um, Ken Nagel. Um, so the way it was working was Ken was going to do Fate Reforged. Or he did do. Ken led the design for He, he did. Uh, he was on the design team for Concept Arcade because normally the person who does the next step, we want them well familiar. Um, and so he was on the team. And one of the things that we were trying to do was make cards that had a relationship between the different sets. So we really wanted a card that was some creature from present day that you got to see in past day. Now, originally, we thought, like, the past wasn't going to be that long ago, but when Creative finally figured it out, it ended up being over a thousand years. Like, wow. Well, that's a long time. There's, there's no... There's not a lot of humanoid creatures that, are, that would be alive that long. And so we had to figure out, okay, well, what, what kind of creature would have that kind of um, longevity? And so we said, you know what? How about a giant turtle? Because turtles are famous for being, you know, old creatures. They live for a long, long time. So how about a giant creature? Because they live even longer if it's a giant creature. Uh, and so we came up with the idea of a giant turtle, or I, I, it might have been Ken's idea. I mean, Ken was inspired by the idea of doing an ancient creature. So he came up with a giant turtle, made a mechanic to match the giant turtle. We then made a card that represented little baby McDurtle that Ken put into Fate Reforge. That card did not make it. That card got cut. Uh, in fact, on the whole block, one of my biggest regrets is I really wish I had fought harder to make sure that card stayed. I, 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 now, we later made a version, an alternate version of Turtle McDurtle in... Dragons of Tarkir, which is uh, a zombie version. I'll get to that when I get to uh, Dragons, Dragons of Tarkir. But we, we did do... Tournament Girl did show up in one parallel, which is between this timeline and the alternate timeline. But if, if he could have also just had little baby McDurtle... Oh! I mean, the, the problem was the card just didn't... St- what, we needed to redesign the card. It, it, what happened was the card wasn't good enough on its own. Development didn't like it and killed it. And I don't even think they were even thinking about, oh, this is the baby turtle. I don't think they were thinking about that. And so... And by the time we sort of realized it was happening, it just, we missed the window. Um, but anyway, one, one of the reasons it's very important to keep lengthy notes of what you're doing, because as you pass through different teams from design to development to creative, you want to make sure that everybody's on board and that understands what you're doing. Like, if you're doing a particular joke and you want it to play, everyone on board has to sign, sign off on it and be aware of it. A, a, little, a little lesson from meandering to our tower shell. Okay, next, Monastery Swift Spear. R for one, two, human monk with haste and prowess. So one of the things that really gave us great hope for prowess as an evergreen mechanic was it just mixes and matches with everything. Like, you literally just take prowess and say, okay, what's another creature keyword? How about haste? 
Yeah, Hasten Promise is actually pretty interesting. Now, in order for Hasten Promise to be interesting, it's got to be tiny. That's why we made it a one-drop creature, because you want to make sure that um, you, 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 you can play a second spell, you'll play a spell, and then play this spell. Um, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. You want to play this spell, and then play the second spell. And then, what's cute is, if you can play a spell, play a second spell, and then the thing is, like, a, for one mana, is a Haste 2-3, which is pretty cool. So that's, that's a neat thing. And I... One of the things that really sold me on prowess was, as we were designing cards, it was just so easy to design prowess cards. That's one of the things you want in an evergreen mechanic, that you can make nice, simple cards, and they're easy to do, and you keep finding more of them. And so, uh, Monastery Swissphere is just a really good example of that. Okay, Murderer's Cut. Four and a black instant, Delve. So Delve, once again, is um, you can make it one cheaper, one color cheaper for every card you remove from the graveyard. Destroy target creature. So there's a card, I forget the name. One of the things we try to do when we can is whenever we bring back something from Future Sight, we try to use one of the Future Sight cards. Well, there are three Delve cards. So the very first thing we did is one of the Delve cards is a terror that doesn't destroy, destroy target non-green creature. And we're like, oh, well, Soul Tie happens to be, have green in it. Perfect. It actually makes sense. Why wouldn't it kill green? Because green is one of its own. It won't kill green. Um, it turns out, though, that development really have been souring on anti-color stuff. It's one of the reasons that Landwalk and, and Protection got downgraded, and the Landwalk went away, and um, Intimidate went away, and, and Protection got downgraded. Like, development really is believing that um, they don't want you to just be instantly hosed because your opponent happened to play a creature that was beneficial for their deck, and, wow, you just can't deal with it with one particular color. We've been moving more toward it's good against certain strategies, but not just wholesale against a color. Um, but anyway, that meant they didn't want to do that kill card. Um, so we ended up saying, okay, let's just make a clean version. How about just murder? Destroy target creature. Let's do a Delve version of that. The cleanest cl- version. And I'm happy... I- I'm sad not to get any of the Future Sight cards in. Um, I talked already about how Tombstalker was supposed to get in and didn't get in. Uh, this is an example of how I'm trying to get the... Mur- uh, I'm blanking on the name of the card. But the, the destroy target non-green creature. Um, we also tried to get the counter spell in. Um, but that just proved to be, um, just Delve Counterspells proved to be problematic. Um, but anyway, we did it each, some moment in the file, each of the three cards from Future Sight was in the file. We did try. That's something that was important to us. But in the end, Future Sight is hinting at things that are coming. It's cute when we can reprint a card, but it's getting harder and harder to do that because as we get more and more distance from it, just, we learn more and more things. It's like the the non-green thing is a perfect example where... In its day, it was fine, but now it's like, oh, we really shifted from that kind of philosophy. Oh, that card doesn't make sense to reprint. So, so Future Sight did tease at Delve, it just didn't tease at, you know, every, every, alternate, every possible future you saw was slightly off from this future, but close. Okay, um, Narset, Enlightened Mafter. Three blue, red, white, so six mana, three colors, which of which are um, Jeskai. She leads the Jeskai. Uh, First Strike, Hexproof. Um... When she attacks, you exile the top four cards of your library, and to end her turn, you may cast them without paying their mana cost. So what we wanted from this thing is, we wanted, she's the leader of the Jeskai, so we both wanted a good fighter, and we wanted something that enabled the Jeskai strategy. Well, the Jeskai strategy had a lot to do with playing non-creature spells, because of prowess and, you know, and, and other related things. It, had, it wanted a lot of spells in it. It also wanted a creature, so the, the idea is, okay, let's make a creature. You know, she's a five-mana... Um, how big is she? I did not write down her power toughness. She's 
She has first strike and hexproof, so she's hard to kill. She's a good fighter. You know, she's a halfway decent body. She's a good fighter. But every time she attacks, oh wow, you get to cast a whole bunch of spells, which, which can do stuff like enable your prowess creatures and things. So like, if I attack with Narset and a bunch of prowess creatures, who knows what's going to happen? That, that becomes a very risky thing. And anyway, um, so one of the questions, by the way, we'll get to this when we get to Dragonstar Kier, but did we know that Narset was going to become a Planeswalker? We did, we did. We did know that. Um, we hadn't designed a Planeswalker yet, obviously, but that's something we were aware of when Creative mapped out the whole thing. One of the things they do is they map out Planeswalkers. And so we knew, we, the idea they had had was in the alternate reality that we'd have a character that in one reality was a legendary creature and the other reality was a Planeswalker. We thought that was cool. Um, we also knew we were going to do two different versions of Sarkin. We knew we were going to do that as well. So, um, but anyway, Narset was pegged early on for being the right person to do that in. So I was very excited. Um, I think Narset was a very cool planeswalker, too. But that's Dragon Stark here. We'll get there. Okay, next. Necropolis Fiend. Seven black, black, four, five demon. It's got Delve, Flying, and it's got the ability X-Tap, Exile, X-Creature cards from your graveyard to give target creature minus X, minus X till end of turn. Okay, so this is an interesting card. It's a Delve card with Tension. So it's a 7BB, a 9-mana 4-5 flyer. So Delve means you can move up to 7 cards from your graveyard to make it, you know, you, you, for black, 2 black mana, you can make a 4-5 demon, flying demon. The problem is, this is where Tension comes in, the ability of the demon really wants to use your graveyard as a resource because you can kill creatures with it. Every card essentially stands for minus 1, minus 1, essentially. And so the idea is, how quickly do I want to get out this creature? But if I go too quickly, if I use up too much of my graveyard, a lot of the value of the creature is undercut. So it's got some attention to it. Next, Pearl Lake Ancient. Five blue blue for a six seven Leviathan with flash, can't be countered, and it's got prowess. And then, got the ability, return three lands you control to your hand to return Pearl Lake Ancient to its owner's hand, which probably is yours if you played it. Um... So this is a there's a lot of things about this creature. I think this creature was made by Eric Lauer in development, I believe. Um, I think it might have been in design, but my my memory was Eric, Eric made this or his team made it. Um, so first off, it's a six seven creature with prowess. Uh, that is definitely quirky. Normally, normally the prowess creatures are a little cheaper. Obviously, you're not casting this card and casting something else in the same turn. But um, once I have it in play, I can cast things. Uh, it's got flash which ties into the other ability, the ability that you can return it to your hand. Um, it also has Can't Be Countered. little quirky, something Eric likes to do is, Can't Be Countered traditionally is in red and green. Red has spells that can't be countered, green has creatures that can't be countered. Blue, we gave blue a little bit of Can't Be Countered on counter spells, because we really thought it was cool to have counter spells that couldn't be countered. Uh, Eric took it from that, that, oh, blue could do Can't Be Countered, and he started spreading other things. I've been trying to rein him in a little bit. The blue's, blue's tertiary in this. Blue can do it a little bit. Um, but I think he just liked the idea that I'm thing, I can bounce it, I can cast it again, you can't stop me. Um, anyway, and this, this card actually was pretty cool in that it's, it's a pretty hard card to kill. Um, you know, you can always sort of bounce it back to your hand, and it can't, it, it can't be countered, so it's hard to counterspell. But anyway, <coughs> um, I don't know, Pearl like Ancient. Okay, next, Ponyback Brigade. So Ponyback Brigade is a six-mana card, three red, white, black, so Mardu colors, 2-2 two, two, Goblin Warrior. When it enters the battlefield or turns face up, you get three 1-1 one, one red goblin tokens, and it has morph. It morphs for two red, white, black, so for one cheaper than to cast it. 
Um, so this is one of the things where I can just play it upright. Um, no matter what, so some cars you have to turn them face up to get the ability. Some morph cards, some morph cards just do it no matter what. This card says, you know what? You're going to get three one one tokens, your goblin tokens. You're going to get them. Doesn't matter. The question really is, do you want to play a little earlier and turn it face up? And one of the nice things is it's one cheaper to, to turn it face up than it is to play. So if you're able to get it face down, that means in turn five you can have it rather than turn six. Um, but once again, Mardu card plays in Mardu strengths. You know, it gives you lots of little creatures to attack with, so a very good Mardu card. Raiders Spoils. Three and a black enchantment, so four mana. Creatures you control get plus one, plus zero. Oh, and whenever a, warrior you, you, whenever a warrior you control deals combat damage, you may pay one life to draw a card. Okay, so I explained before that the white-black archetype was a warrior tribal. So this card is meant for that. Uh, it has two abilities on it. The first ability is just it, bu- it buffs your team. It's not a bad ability. Um, four mana for that ability is a little much. So it's one of those things where maybe you'll play it in limited if you need to, but um, it really... The more warriors you have, the more valuable the card is. Because the second ability really is where the power lies. And if you're playing warriors, if warriors are your thing, well, you're just going to drop this card higher. It's just much more valuable to you if you have a lot of warriors in your deck. So it's definitely a card that's sort of like meant for the warrior deck, but it's not useless outside of the warrior deck. Um, so what we did there is, uh, and this is another trick we do all the time, is we make a card so it's slightly stronger, or more than slightly stronger, stronger in its theme, but potentially usable outside its theme. But the idea is that the person who's dedicated to that theme will value it higher and draft it higher than the person who doesn't. So the idea is the warrior player has a better chance of getting this thing earlier than the non-warrior player, who might take it, but much later than a player with lots of warriors would. Um, the other thing it did, by the way, is this card says, uh, obviously if you, if you have a warrior strategy, you're playing it, but let's say I'm just playing those colors. I'm playing Mardu or I'm playing Abzan, you know, if I have enough warriors, I might consider it, especially in Mardu. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I go, oh, well, I don't have to fully commit to it. I mean, it, it, the card has value even when I don't have warriors. And you know what? Every warrior I have just a little bit better. Oh, how many warriors do I have? I got three or four? Okay, maybe I can play this. And you know what? Maybe because I'm playing it, I'll throw in a warrior or two extra that I was not sure about. You know, it'll, it'll, my 23rd creature or 23rd card might be a warrior, where before I wouldn't necessarily care if it was a warrior. Okay, next. Rakshasa Death Dealer. First off, the cat demons, the Rakshasas. I cannot pronounce this word. Rakshasa. Rakshasa. Okay, got it. Rakshasa. Okay. Um, so I just can't say this word. I don't know why. Um, sometimes I can. Rakshasa. Rakshasa. Ah, I cannot say this word. Um, the team found it hilarious that I had trouble with this word. And I think they would rename things. They would turn in designs that just had it in the name. I'm like, that's not even a cat demon. Why does it have that name? They're like, what name? What's it called? Anyway, it was a running joke all through design. Rakshasa. Rakshasa. Got it. Rakshasa dealer. Death dealer. Black and a green. Two mana for a 2-2 cat demon. It's got two abilities. For black and green, it can get plus 2, plus 2 until end of turn. And for black and a green, it can regenerate. Um, the neat thing there is the first ability is kind of a crossover. Black has the shade ability. Green has the root wall ability. So normally black tends to pump for smaller amounts. Green pumps for higher amounts. But green pumps... Only once per turn, black pumps repeatedly. So this is repeated like a shade, but a little bigger like a um, root walla. And then the second ability, regeneration, happens to be in black and green. Um, 
And so, basically, it's just a creature that has two abilities that kind of play in the overlap of black and green. Um, once again, let's do the test. Black and green is in Sultai, and black and green is in Abzan. Okay, well, the plus two blue pumper is good for attacking, and the regenerator is good for defending. So it's got one ability that makes it more friendly for a Sultai deck, and one that makes it more friendly for an Abzan deck. Okay, next. Rakshasa Vizier. That's two hard words. Uh, two black, green, blue, five mana, uh, and it's um, Sultai. Four, four, Cat Demon, obviously. Whenever one or more cards is exiled from your graveyard, put that many plus one luck counters on card name. So this is a Delve, uh, not an enabler, a Delve, uh, it beneficially works when you Delve. So basically what it says is, hey, if only there were a way to exile a lot of cards in your graveyard. Oh, look, a whole mechanic that does that. So this card really is meant to play nicely with Delve. You just lots of good things happen when you Delve. And so that is what it is there for. Next, Rattleclaw Mystic. One and a green for a 2-1 Human Shaman. Tap, add green, blue, or red to your mana pool. Um, it's got Morph 2. We'll get to back, back to that in a second. And when it's turned face up, you add green, blue, or red to your mana pool. Um, so this card is definitely very interesting. Uh, for starters, it morphs for not colored mana. What that means is you've now made a card that any color could play in their deck. Now, it's, it's better for you in, in uh, these colors, partly because the colors it's giving you are beneficial if you have stuff that uses those colors. Otherwise, and for all intents and purposes, it's colorless. Um, also, the thing that's neat is you might have some of these colors in your deck, but not all of your colors. Um, so, now, it's a green card. Normally, it would be more for the green. Uh, the, the decision was made to let everybody have access to this. Uh, it's mana. We let mana artifacts get access to mana. It's something we do let every deck get a hold of. Not necessarily in every color, but every deck get a hold of. And so we decided to let it do it. This card is neat in that um, if you unmorph it, you actually end up getting four mana because you get the three mana that it adds, plus you then can tap it for mana. So it, it secretly actually gives you four mana when you unmorph it. Or turn it face up. I like using the term unmorph. It's probably not technically the correct term. Um, we just never really... One of the things we never really defined was, was Morph playing a creature from your hand face down, or was Morph taking it face down and turning it face up? What is morphing it? I always thought morphing was putting it from your hand face down, and then to me it's unmorphing it, like morphing morphing is hiding it, and unmorphing is unhiding it. Anyway, that's why I say unmorph. Uh, Okay, Ride Down, Red-White Instant, destroy target blocking creature, and then creatures blocked by that creature gain trample. So mostly what that wanted to be, this is one of the ones where I think originally it's like, Remove a creature and pretend like it didn't block. And then the rules people go, well, once it blocks, it's blocked. You can't pretend like it doesn't block. And, you know, the rules people are like, well, what you want is we could just give trample to the creatures and then essentially, you know, and like, that's a good example where we make something and then the rules team sort of turns it into actual practical, like, here's actually how you have to write it. Um, sometimes, a lot of times when that happens, it's not as cool sounding. Like, you know, target creature, destroy target creature and pretend like it never blocked you. Sounds cooler than what this is, although essentially what this does is equivalent to that. It just, a lot of times design writes it in the more sound splashy way, and then once it gets to the development and, you know, template, it's like, now let's actually write it on the way the rules can handle it. Okay, next. Roar of the Challenge. Two green sorcery. All creatures must block target creature if able, and ferocious, that creature gets indestructible. So this is playing into what we call the lure ability, showed up in Alpha, which says, hey, everybody's got to block me. Um, and the ferocious thing is cool because not only 
the other thing going to block you, but you got to survive the experience. Um, so that's a nice... Like, like I said before, finding Ferocious was for tricky because you got to find an effect that you like the first effect and the second effect is just synergistic with the first effect. Well, this is a good example. Being indestructible is pretty good when everyone's going to block you. means you won't die. Um, so, you know, I, anyway, I, I like that. I thought it was, it was pretty cool. Okay, my final card for today. I'm going to do R and end with R and pick up next time with S. So I have Ruthless Ripper. Black for a 1-1 human assassin with death touch. Morph, reveal a black card from your hand to turn it, uh, to unmorph it, and then fate, when it turns face up, target player loses two life. Okay, I, I ended on a card, but I have something to say about it, so how are we doing on time? Okay, a little extra bonus today. Um, okay, so one of the things I wanted to do when we planned out the block, we knew that we were doing morph in the first set, we were doing um, manifest in the second set, and we were doing some morph variant. What we thought we were going to do ended up changing, but we are doing a morph variant in the third set, which ended up becoming Megamorph, obviously. Um... So one of the things about the first set was I needed to do morph as is. I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to... We were doing morph. Later sets were going to do version of morph that's not morph. But I needed to do morph. But I still wanted to innovate a little bit. You know, we were doing a lot of straight-up morph. And so one of the ideas I, I had was, how, how else... What could be cool about morph that we didn't really let you do? And one of the answers was, we haven't really made... Do morphs that aren't mana. I mean, there's a little bit of paying life, and we, 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 we've... we've touched our toe in it, but we haven't done a lot. And so, one of the ideas I liked a lot is, okay, is there a way to morph that doesn't require mana? And the question was, but I still want you to be in that color, meaning I don't want you to say, hey, I'm playing like, there's a black card that you could unmorph for paying life. Well, that got played in every deck, because every deck could pay life. Everyone had life. I didn't want you to throw this in other decks. So what I realized was we needed to find a trigger that required you playing the color, but didn't require you having mana. And the nice, clean answer was revealing a card from your hand of that color. Well, if I'm playing black, I had to have a black card in my hand. So it's like, okay, I can unmorph this by showing you a black card. Um, that, by the way, did all sorts of neat things that I really, really enjoyed. One of the things is, revealing a card as a cost feels like the most nothing cost in the world because, hey, I have the card in my hand already. So really what you're giving up is information, which is kind of cool. A, in that is a different kind of cost. And B, it allows you to do things that are interesting because your opponent gets to see something in your hand. You're giving them knowledge. But you actually can use that to your benefit because sometimes you can show them something and then manipulate things because they know that's in your hand. Um, like, very, for example, a real common trick is you reveal it, you show a morph card, and then, you know, that turn or next turn, you play a morph card. And like, oh, did he just play the morph card he showed me? Is that what it was? Or did he show me a card and play a morph of something else? You know, so there was a lot. One of the things I liked about this set is, and one of the reasons I really, really liked Morph is, one of the things that I was trying to get for the environment for, for Warlord World was there was a lot of intrigue, trying to figure each other out. There was, you know, there's all these warlords that are plotting and planning, and everyone doesn't quite know everything. That information is so important, and there's secrets, and you're trying to glean things, that Morph really played into that sensibility of, you know, trying to understand all, all around you, and trying to outmaneuver and outwit your opponent, but you don't quite know everything, and I, <coughs> I really felt that I did a good job of doing that. So one of the things we did is, we then decided that not only would you get to reveal this, but there would be a small effect. Um... So it also allows you to, for no mana, generate a small effect. And so we tried different effects. I think this one originally drained rather than just lost life. But in the end, we ended up making the white one life gain, so we had to make this life loss. Um, and it was, the drain was a little too powerful. Um, but anyway, I, 
Of all the morph cards in in, uh, in cons, I really, really like this cycle. This is a whole cycle. I, I'm just talking about the black one. This was a whole cycle. And I, I really liked how they played. I really liked the fact that we were able to innovate a little bit and do something kind of cool with morph we hadn't done before. I just liked how it added to the overall mood and tone and the gameplay we were trying to do. Um, like, I talk about this all the time, that you're trying to create a mood, and that what you want to do is make gameplay that reinforces your tone and your mood. Like, like I say this a lot, but... To me, gameplay is as much create as, as much um, environment and story building as names or flavor text or art. That if players can feel what you want them to feel in the environment or feel in the story, that is really really powerful and really helps capture what you're trying to do. And so, I consider gameplay just another component of getting people part of the world. And, you know that, that there's all this. That gameplay really can help in a very cool way of making you feel part of what's going on. And I feel that these, these cards did a neat job of doing that. Okay, I've gotten up to S. So my plan next time is next time hopefully will be my last podcast on Constant Tarkir. Um, I hope. Uh, anyway, but I'm now in my parking spot, so we all know what that means. That means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. See you next time for the last Cons of Tarkir.